Our lesson today is from Isaiah chapters 36 and 37. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, made war on all the fortress cities of Judah and took them. Then the king of Assyria sent his general, the Rabshakeh, accompanied by a huge army from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah. The Rabshakeh stood up and called out loudly in Hebrew, the common language. Don't listen to Hezekiah. Listen to the king of Assyria's offer. Make peace with me. Come and join me. Everyone will be Everyone will end up with a good life, with plenty of land and water, and eventually something far better. I'll turn you loose in wide open spaces with more than enough fertile and productive land for everyone. Don't let Hezekiah mislead you with his lies. God will save us. Has that ever happened? Has any god in history ever gotten the best of the king of Assyria? Look around you. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad, the gods of Sepharvim? Did the gods do anything for Samaria? Name one god that has ever saved its countries from me. So what makes you think that God could save Jerusalem from me? When King Hezekiah heard the report, he tore his clothes and dressed in rough penitential burlap gunny sacks and went into the sanctuary of God. He sent the palace administrator, the secretary, and the senior priests, all of them also dressed in penitential burlap, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz. They said to him, Hezekiah says, this is a black day. We're in crisis. We're like pregnant women without even the strength to have a baby. Do you think your God heard what the Rabshakeh said, sent by his master, the king of Assyria, to mock the living God? And do you think your God will do anything about it? Pray for us, Isaiah. Pray for those of us left here holding the fort. Then King Hezekiah's servants came to Isaiah. Isaiah said, tell your master this, God's message. Don't be upset by what you've heard. All those words the servants of the Assyrian king have used to mock me. I personally will take care of him. I'll arrange it so that he'll get a rumor of bad news back home and rush home to take care of it, and he'll die there. Here ends the first reading. Thanks be to God. Our second reading for today is from Isaiah chapter 2. The message Isaiah received regarding Judah and Jerusalem. There's a day coming when the mountain of God's house will be the mountain. Solid, towering all over all other mountains. All nations will river toward it. People from all over set out for it. They'll say, come, let's climb God's mountain. Go Go to the house of the God of Jacob. He'll show us the way he works so we can live the way we're made. Zion's the source of the revelation. God's message comes from Jerusalem. God will settle things fairly between nations. God will make things right between many peoples. 
They'll turn their swords into shovels, their spears into hoes. No more will nation fight against nation. They won't play war anymore. Come, family of Jacob, let's live in the light of God. Let us pray. May the words in my mouth and the meditations in our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There is an episode of the television show Third Rock from the Sun that I think of periodically because it poses an interesting theological question. Now, if it's been a while since you watched Third Rock from the Sun or you never watched it, I'll help refresh your memory. It's an old show. The show's premise is that there are four aliens who come to Earth disguised as humans in order to study us. And so they go out and they live their lives and all sorts of interesting observations are made. In this particular episode, the alien who is a teenage boy, Tommy, um, is forced by the crew or told by the crew to go and join um, his school basketball team. Well, Tommy doesn't want to do this. He doesn't think it's very important. But nevertheless, he joins the team. He tries out, and they show him coming home and complaining about what they have to do and all of the various activities. But at one point in the show, we actually get to see the team in action. And they show Tommy with his team on the basketball court before the game, and they're gathered around dribbling and participating in, in that, the game. And the coach calls them all over, as coaches do right before they start, and says, huddle up, huddle up. And so the team huddles together. The coach gives them some last-minute instructions about what they're going to do. And then he says, all right, let's pray. Coach is down on one knee, and the entire team bows their head in prayer. That is, except for Tommy. And Tommy is looking out over at the other side of the court where he notices that, that the team on the opposing side is doing the exact same thing. Here they are in a huddle with their coaches on, the, on his knee, and they're bowing their heads in prayer. So Tommy speaks up. Wait a minute, wait a minute, he says. Do we actually think that God cares who wins this basketball game today at our school? And the kids and the team and the coach kind of like nod their heads. They're like, I don't know. And then Tommy says, well, if we believe God cares about who wins this basketball team, then who are they praying to? Are they praying to the same God that we are? And are they praying that they're going to win too? Whose side is God on? It's an interesting question. Whose side is God on? We see this happen in sports teams, right? Someone makes a winning touchdown and they point, out to, uh, point up to heaven or give a nod to God. Or afterwards they thank God for the win. We might wonder, is God with the Packers or the Vikings? There was opinions. I don't have one um, about this at the first service. But it isn't just sports teams. Our politicians make the argument that you should vote for me because I'm the Christian candidate or I'm the one who follows God's ways the best. And in situations of war between nations, we argue that God is on our side and not theirs. 
This is what we see happening in our lesson for today. It's a confusing lesson that Paul read wonderfully well. Well done, Paul. Um, if you had come to me for pronunciations, I guarantee you I would have made it bad. Um, but thankfully you went elsewhere. <laughs> um, this story that we're hearing in our, in our lesson today is one in which war is on the horizon. King Hezekiah is the king of Israel, and the Syrian empire is moving towards them. They have been battling in other cities and conquering them, and city by city, country by country, kingdoms have fallen to the hands of the Assyrians. Life is hard, and now Israel is facing their inevitable doom, or so it seems. The Syrian army is on the horizon and they send their general for a little talk before they go to war. And the general comes in and says, you know what, let's not even fight. Just lay down your weapons and come on, just submit to our ways. Let's not even bother with the war, come live under our empire. But then the general goes on to actually mock their belief in God. Do you think your God is going to fight for you, he says? Do you actually think that God will do that? God hasn't fought for any of those other nations. And in fact, if you think God is with anybody, let me assure you, God is with us. King Hezekiah remains silent in the face of the general. And when he finally leaves, he and his entire staff go inside. They rip their clothes. They put on burlap sacks. And they repent. They turn to the prophet Isaiah, asking for Isaiah to pray for them, and Isaiah does. Isaiah then tells them, Don't worry, because you trusted in God, God will save you. And in fact, you'll be okay. The king of Assyria will return to his hometown and, in fact, will die. I cut out the last line of our reading, which says, And he will die a violent death. Because to be honest, it's hard to close a reading with he'll die a violent death and then say, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. <laughs> I mean, we said he'll die. It was pretty close anyhow. And I think when we get done with the reading, we're supposed to turn around and go, hooray, hooray, God saved the Israelites. They trusted in God and God fought for them. But if you're anything like me, when I get to the conclusion of that reading, there's something about it that bothers me. Just like I told our kids during the children's message, I read the Bible with question marks, and I get to the end of that reading, and I think, really? Is that the takeaway? Does God fight for one side over the others? In our wars, is God on one side and opposing somebody else? Are there really good guys and bad guys? Because as far as I know about war, more often than not, the leaders get to make the decisions. And most of the people who are fighting the actual battles are ordinary people like you and me, who are saint and sinner, good people who have problems, of course, and mess up from time to time, but so many innocent lives are lost. The biblical narrative is not all that helpful when it comes to understanding where is God in the midst of war. And in fact, in lessons like we heard today, we hear that God is right in there, right? Fighting the battles. 
There is a reason we don't read much of the book of Joshua in church because if you want to read a book where it tells us that God is out in the midst of military might and with arms, there it is. God goes from nation to nation conquering in the name of the people of Israel and they acquire land and wealth. And many people die and it's hard and disturbing and I think we can wonder where is God in all of this? Those biblical narratives have allowed other nations, have allowed the crusades to be fought, have allowed people to do violence in the name of God. And lest we think it is something of the past, it continues today. Wars are still fought in God's name. Acts of terror are, fought, are committed in the name of God. We just saw it a couple weeks ago in Pittsburgh. It happened a couple years ago in Florida. It happens all the time. We use God's name to justify our acts of violence. So I think the question that we are posed with is then where is God in war? Does God just stand back at a distance? Is God not involved in our daily life? Does God not care? No. I actually think we have a different narrative, a different biblical alternative to that one. Isaiah 2 gives us a hint of it, right? This glimpse of the kingdom of God where all nations and all people come together to God's holy mountain. Everyone gets to be a part of this kingdom where God teaches a different way. Not a way of war, but a way of peace, a way of life. And it might sound like some pie in the sky vision, but it's actually the one that Jesus taught us as well. Jesus came to live that out, coming close, living in the midst of all of us humans. And instead of picking up his sword or coming as a military king, Jesus came in peace with empty hands. And when another empire stood up to him, he told his disciples to drop their swords. And he actually allowed himself to die. His message in the end, however, was not that one side can be forgiven and not the other, but instead that all are forgiven, that all are welcomed, that all are given peace, all are loved, and that that is the way we should follow. This is the way we live in God's kingdom. It does seem kind of unbelievable. It does stretch our imaginations, but there are glimpses of this, I think, happening in our world. One of my heroes is Father Greg Boyle, a Jesuit priest in California, and I've talked about him from time to time. Father Boyle works with gangs, and he worked for a while trying to eliminate gangs and then eventually kind of realized that was a mute point and decided that he would instead create jobs for former gang members. He somehow got gang members to put down their guns and pick up spatulas. Swords into plowshares, guns into spatulas. Perhaps that's a reality. He tells the story of talking to a gang member right around the holidays, actually after the holidays, and he goes, well, what did you do for the holiday? And the, the guy says, ah, I just stayed here and I had some people over. And he goes, well, who'd you have over? And he lists this six other people, all of whom were in former gangs, fighting each other, enemies, they gathered together for a holiday meal, and he goes, well, what did you do? He goes, I believe it or not, we, I made a turkey. 
goes, well, how'd you make that turkey? He goes, well, ghetto style. And Father Boy goes, well, I'm not familiar with that recipe. <laughs> he goes, well, you take a gang of butter, you smear it over the turkey, you squeeze out some limones, you put it in the oven. He goes, well, here we were, seven of us, staring at the oven as the turkey baked. They didn't even have any other sides, but the turkey turned out just great. And Father Boyle thinks about it and he says, is there anything more sacred than that? Than these former enemies who now come together around a meal and can somehow join together? It's a beautiful image, isn't it? Could we follow that way of peace? Could we lay it down our weapons? Somehow I think if gang members in LA can allow their their um, guns to become spatulas, that we can follow their lead. Amen.